Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today's Thursday, January 10th, and we're discussing energy and industrials. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How's it going, Jason? Happy New Year. I think it's still it's still early enough in January I can get away with saying that, so I'm going to say it. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. This is our, our first uh, new taping of the year. You know, last week we, we used our, our pre-record from, from back in October 4th, where we you know kind of looked ahead to what was going on in 2019. Some of those predictions have panned out, some of them not quite so much. So, you know, the first half of the show today, we're going to you know, lay down maybe where we went wrong and kind of pull the thread on why that might have occurred. And then on the back half of the show, uh, some of our listeners sent in some questions about different topics they wanted us to hit uh, when it comes to 2019 energy trends. So we're going to hit that on the back half of the show. But but first off, Jason, uh, you know, we could have picked better timing when it came to the oil market to tape uh, to tape our last show uh, we, that we recorded last week. And you can find that in our uh, in our podcast feed if you want to go back and listen to that. So we, we recorded our 2019 roundtable with Jason, Tyler Crow, and Matt DeLalo on October 4th. And lo and behold, that was the top of the oil market uh, for 2018, Jason. October 3rd and October 4th were the two days that uh, West Texas Intermediate, you know, the big benchmark for U.S. Uh, crude oil, and then Brent crude on the day that we uh, recorded, that they that they peaked for the year. And since then, I think we're looking at like, I don't know, a 40% decline. Um, so, I mean, sure, there are macroeconomic things and there are major geopolitical issues, but I'm pretty sure that the four of us killed the oil rally. I'm convinced that it was us. That's hey, no doubt about that, Jason. You know, they say, are we signal or noise? I think we might be, might be signal over here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, want, don't want to build us up too much there. But yeah, you're Somebody right. Somebody call Nate Silver. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, right. Uh, both um, both Brent and WTI back in October were up, you know, above twenty percent for the year, and actually turned out that crude oil was uh, among the asset classes available was the worst performer last year, down for the year twenty four point eight percent. So that's a significant swoon to have gone from you know up twenty thirty percent on the year uh, back in October to really really collapse. And there were a few things that kind of contributed to that. Uh, first off, you know, uh, when we recorded that show back in October, you know, Matt had mentioned what kind of impact Iran sanctions might have on, on the the oil markets, and it really didn't turn out to have much of an impact at all when it came to reducing supply. I want to say around ninety seven percent of Iran's exports, at least from two thousand seventeen, you know, the, the nations that they they exported to, were exempt from Iran sanctions. So essentially, the, that oil supply never came off the market. And then in conjunction with that, uh, in anticipation of that supply coming off the market, Saudi Arabia had increased their production. Um, so we kind of got ourselves in an oversupply situation uh, you know, back in the back half of the year. Is that consistent with what you, what you saw, Jason? I think so. I think there's also there's a really good learning opportunity coming out of, out of that when it comes to, and it's not even just oil and <clears throat> you know, crude oil uh, that we can use this for. I mean, it carries over to uh, you know, iron, um, just about any other kind of raw, uh, <clears throat> good, any type of, you know, commodity, uh, that's produced on an international basis and has lots of things that affect it. And the lesson is, you know, if you look back then, you think about it, you know, you talk about the Iran thing, I think, so the big drivers that had pushed oil up to that point was the expectation that with all of the problems that, we, you know, we've talked about 
you know, multiple times on the show with, uh, you know, geopolitical problems in countries that have killed oil production in a lot of places. And then with the Iran sanctions, there was this major expectation that there was going to be, you know, uh, the, the oil market was really going to get tight. And especially considering coming out of the U.S., President Trump has been so hard um, on on Iran, right? I mean, he was coming down really hard, you know, with with these sanctions. And there was that expectation that, okay, all right, so, so the Saudis are going to have to bridge the gap a little bit. It's going to take them a little bit of time to do it. And I think the other thing that maybe some of us missed that we should have considered, and it's hard to because there's always something in hindsight that you see, right? But at the same time, um, the Trump administration has been very, uh, very hard on pushing oil prices down, right? The, the, the impact on economic growth. And, you know, Trump has, has said repeatedly uh, when oil prices were peaking that oil prices needed to come down. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that there was necessarily any particular, like we did it on purpose um, with the, I think there was probably some pressure from some of our allies, some of our trading partners um, to, to pass those exemptions, um, for Iran's oil, but the net result was, you know, this thing that nobody was really seeing in the tea leaves. You know, we ended up with a lot more oil than we thought, and, and here we are today. So, yeah, that's you know, these things happen. And the point is, I guess the big t- the big lesson is, you can't. It's so hard in the short term to predict what's going to happen because there are so many levers and so many things that influence commodity prices that you just can't predict and you have no control over and no way to know what they're going to do. And that's where, that's where the risk lives, right? It lives in what you don't know. So here we are. Exactly. I mean, I think, like you said it perfectly, when it comes to these global commodity markets, there are just an innumerable number of variables that can impact the price on any given day or any given month or any given year. And so to try to predict that is just a very dangerous game to play um, because you're always going to get surprised coming around the corner. Um, Absolutely. You know, talk about some kind of geopolitical events that are still continuing to play out. You know, Venezuela's production is still continuing to fall, so that's going to continue to affect markets. Um, that's kind of a thing we pulled the thread on a little bit back in October. I think there's, there's been some issues as well in Libya with some folks shutting, you know, uh, militias and things of that nature, kind of shutting down some major oil fields there. So those are things affecting the market. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how things continue to play out, you know, geopolitically there. But you know, the oil markets have rallied a bit to start the year, uh, but it's really it's just very difficult to predict. And it, as Jason mentioned, you know, for investors, it's you don't want you know, the key of your thesis to hinge on predicting what's going to happen in, in these global commodity markets because that's very very difficult uh, to predict and it's a dangerous game to play. Absolutely. Um, another trend we kind of talked about and we are are starting to see play out a little bit was just what kind of role LNG is going to play. Uh, you know, going forward. And, you know, just this past week, uh, we heard reports out of the Wall Street Journal that, you know, Saudi Arabia is looking to make potentially significant investment in U.S. LNG exporting facilities. Um, what's your takeaway when it comes to those rumors and kind of looking at LNG going forward this year? So, liquefied natural gas is really, it's, it's, I've been relatively bullish on it for a few years now because. For the U.S., you know, we have this massive glut, and it's it's not just in natural gas fields. Um, it's it's also this um, associated gas, which you think about the Permian and the, and the huge growth in oil production in that area. There's a lot of natural gas that just kind of comes up as a like comes up along with the oil, um, and capturing that and and maximizing the economic value of that gas has been a challenge. But the technology's gotten better. 
Uh, there's some regulatory pressures to do that too. So anyway, we have this ton of gas and really it's more than, than the U.S. is able to consume internally. And historically, gas has been relatively geographically used, um, but you know, LNG is kind of changing that to be able to export it across oceans um, to, to be able to use it for petrochemical manufacturing. But I think especially for, for energy production uh, as, as, a, as a challenge to coal, um, it's just it's cheaper. You think about countries like China that still have a really you know, rapidly growing uh, economy that have a burgeoning middle class that's, that's wanting to consume more energy. Um, that has a lot of internal problems with pollution from coal production growth over the years. Um, there's just going to be pent up demand for gas uh, for a long time. I think when you look at Saudi Arabia, they've actually used um, crude oil uh, <clears throat> distillates to produce a lot of their internal energy. So what I think one of the things they're looking at is being able to utilize natural gas imported from other places uh, for their internal electricity production so that they can monetize their super duper cheap oil production a little bit more effectively. So I think that's kind of part of their, their game. Um, and I think it makes sense and it gives them a little bit of diversity too, away from just this, you know, crude oil, which is still such a, you know, it's basically, it's their economy still. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're going to hear more noise about this um, as, uh, as time goes. It just, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It, 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 exactly right. You know, the Saudis have really wanted to diversify away from oil, you know, to, to kind of just, get their economy less dependent on, on that one single resource, you know, for their production. We've seen, I mean, the Qatar is going all in on, on gas production, even to the point of, of leaving OPEC to kind of go after that. So it's, you know, we, we, we're definitely seeing some signs that it's a trend that it's going to continue to play out. Um, you mentioned coal and kind of a, where, what, where, where coal is starting to sit relative to other uh, energy uh, resources. And, you know, it, it kind of plays a role in what's going on with renewables. So I saw another article in the Wall Street Journal, you know, just came out today, I believe, uh, speaking about how a lot of utilities in the United States have uh, sped up the pace at which they're going to retire their coal plants just because of how cheap uh, solar and wind have become uh, on, a, on a per megawatt hour basis relative to coal. So, you know, I, we're seeing these trends from LNG, the, a little bit cleaner burning fuel, particularly, you know, exporting overseas, is that's, is that's a cheaper alternative. But even domestically, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, these renewables displace coal as a bigger as a bigger measure of our production. I, I think Excel Energy was the first uh, utility to come out and say that hey, we're going to be 100% uh, carbon free in energy production. I think they put 2050 as their target right. for that. So yep. I mean, we're really starting to see a push away from these legacy energy producers like coal and really LNG and renewables come to the fore uh, as you know the energy production of the future. Yeah, and I think that's going to remain the case. Um, you know, one of the the interesting things that's 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 happened in the U.S. that's driven gas price, natural gas prices down, is the advent of of fracking, hydraulic fracturing, and you know, being able to to tap these shale natural gas resources where there's this huge glut. But at the same time, there have been constant advances in solar technology that have driven down the cost per watt of producing a solar panel, have pushed up the efficiency of the panels to be able to capture more energy per you know, unit of actual panel that's installed. And we've seen some of the same efficiency gains, if not quite as much, but we've seen you know, a good number of efficiency gains in, uh, in wind turbines too. Um, and the bottom line is, especially with wind turbines right now, they're, I mean, they're competitive with, with just about any, any other way of producing electricity 
um, in the in the U.S. Um, competitive even with natural gas. Um, and obviously, there are some there are some tax incentives that that play a role in that, and those are gradually rolling off um, <clears throat> for the production side on on um, on wind. Uh, but even as those roll off, you know the the just the scale of the industry driving down costs and the improvements in the efficiency of the turbines is getting to the point where it's just cheaper, right? And if it's cheaper and, and it's also uh, you know, a carbon neutral way to do it, you know, that's, it's just kind of where we are. Right, Jason. And I mean, it, you know, we mentioned how difficult it is pr- to predict oil prices and, and the volatility there, you know, which has led me at least personally, and I think we, we've discussed this over Slack a little bit, to just kind of lump a lot of these oil related na- names kind of, or oil related businesses in kind of the too hard pile. We don't know how, what's going to happen when it comes to uh, volatility and what's going to move, move in these global, global commodities. But I think if you look out, you know, 10, 15 years, what I what I can know for certain is going to get bigger is solar and wind energy production. You know, we're, we're seeing them become uh, more cost parity with, with other production alternatives. And then as we mentioned, uh, you know, on the previous show, when it came to the duck curve, right, the sun isn't always out and wind isn't always blowing. So there's going to be a need for something to come into the market to kind of fill in that gap when those things aren't working. So that's going to be battery storage technology over the long term. And it's going to be LNG peaker plants to come in and and fill in uh, uh, that uh, that you know demand when energy demand comes online. So the places that I'm going to be looking for ideas, you know, in in energy, you know, right now are going to be areas in that space. So how are we going to get bring LNG to market? How are we going to export it? How, what is in the value chain for these batteries that we're going to use for energy storage? And then what's going on, you know, in all the different facets uh, of wind and renewable, uh, you know, energy like solar. What what are your thoughts on that kind of? Idea, Jason. Well, I think I think that I think you're you're pretty spot on with the caveat that here in the U.S. because we're producing the gas here, it won't even have to be liquefied natural gas, right? Because we have a huge pipeline infrastructure that already exists. So the U.S. is going to be able to use you know natural gas coming right out of the oil fields and then going right into the pipeline, so it's even cheaper. But certainly in Europe, um, <clears throat> in uh, Asia, um, LNG is going to be a, a major source of you, you know energy. Um, Supplanting coal and also nuclear too, right? We we haven't really mentioned that, but you know, nuclear is getting a lot of the plants are getting super old and they're kind of aging out and they're not being replaced with with new nuclear plants. And it's going to be liquefied natural gas, kind of for that base load, and then for some of the peaker demand, and then renewables and uh, battery storage to help with it as well. I think so. Um, but I think you're spot on too about the the difficulty in the in the in predicting oil and gas prices. You know, I did, I did a little bit of research. And one of the things that I looked at before the show is I looked at the S&P um, oil and gas explorer and producers uh, index um, going back to 2016, early 2016. <clears throat> so this is the companies that, that, that they're, they're pure plays in oil and gas production. I mean, you know, these are U.S. companies mainly. Um, so you go back to February of 2016, which is oil prices basically bottomed, right? We're looking at, you know, oil was trading in the high 20s, low 30s. And since then, you know, oil prices have, even after the decline since October, oil prices are still, you know, up like, I don't know, 60% from then. They're, they're up substantially. But that index is only up about 14% in total returns. Um, as a comparison, the S&P 500 is up about 42%. Since then, so this that sector, even from the lowest oil prices that we've seen in like I don't know twenty years, sixteen years, has vastly underperformed um, the, the the rest of the uh, the rest of the market. So, 
I agree completely. I'm just, uh, you know, these pure play oil and gas producers, um, I definitely put them in the too hard uh, bucket because they tend to follow oil prices. Even the low cost guys, even the ones that have the, the strongest balance sheets and, and have the ability to, to reinvest their cash flows and, and, and live within their means and not have to take on more debt to fund, you know, capital expenditures and that kind of stuff. It, it, they, they, they follow oil prices. You can't predict oil prices. I just think most investors would do better off investing somewhere where there's just more predictability, right? I think that's the key thing, right? Yeah, it's not to say there's not money to be made with these EMP players or folks tied to oil prices. It's just you have to pay a heck of a lot more attention, and you probably need a little bit of luck to get in and out. You know, when when prices are favorable. So if if you take a long term view of what I know is going to happen, I think that there are better you know alternatives elsewhere in the market. Um, easier, there are easier, easier alternatives yeah. to get to get you know, a, a, an acceptable rate of return. That's the thing, right? So I think people go into these ENPs a lot of time looking to try and get that big, quick double because oil prices are going to go up and then something nobody expects happens and you end up you know, losing 25% or 30% before you know it. So that's the thing, right? If you can just focus on capturing an acceptable rate of return and something that's a little easier to predict, you could avoid these unexpected losses. Yes, it's something to watch or keep in mind for investors when you're making making decisions on uh, on what you want to buy and sell. Okay, on the back half of the show, Jason and I are going to take some of your questions, but first, a message from our sponsor. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year. But where do you find the right person for your needs? That's why when it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day. That's LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly. But 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com fool. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Jason. Uh, Let's take some take some questions from our listeners that we got via Twitter. Uh, just a reminder to to our listeners: if you want to send us in any questions, um, you can reach us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or via email uh, at industryfocus@fool.com. First question we've got is from Cam Kane on Twitter, um, and he says he'd like a show on the American Yield Co's uh, Terraform Power, Pattern Energy, uh, Next Era Energy, and Brookfield of Renewable. Um, what's in store for them in 2019, and what are the pros and cons of each? I'd also like us to dive a little bit into into uh, wind um, with Vestas. Um, so, of course, this is going to need an entire show for us to dive into to, to all these issues. But you know, on some of these names or companies that he mentioned, um, number one, what's your favorite out of this group? And number two, is there anything in particular you want to call out about these companies? You know, knowing that we're we're probably going to dive into these uh, in a more deeper fashion. Here later on in a few weeks. Well, I jokingly replied on Twitter and told him just to buy them all. And um, I'm only kind of joking because in general, I, I'm really, I am bullish on this entire sector. I think there's a really predictable path for them to grow. I think because these are the sec- this is the sector of, of uh, renewables where you see consistent cash flows because they sell power on long-term contracts. I do like the space. Um, but I think looking at, looking at 2019 from where we are today, um, I'll say Terraform Power and Brookfield Renewables, uh, which owns about two-thirds of Terraform Power, they're definitely at the top of my list. Um, they pay really high yields right now because the market's been relatively down on them. Um, 
but that Brookfield, that entire Brookfield asset management kind of umbrella of, of, of companies, they're just really good at making money. They're really good at um, investing in assets that provide really good returns. Um, and, and I think that that pattern of, 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 of doing that, their history is going to prove out over the long term. And right now, Terraform and Brookfield Renewable, uh, they both look like great values to pay super high yields. And their ability to grow the payout over time, I think, is going to prove to be well above average. Yeah, Jason, calling back to what you mentioned earlier, I, I think these these yield codes kind of fall in that perfect bucket of a reasonable return relative to the risk that you're taking into the investment. In particular, these Brookfield uh, affiliated businesses, you know, they just have a long track record of successful, profitable investing. And you know, as we mentioned on the first half of the show. There are some, uh, you know, significant signs of growth in these areas that are going to need more infrastructure investment, and that's what they do, um, and they do it profitably. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. All right, our next question, um, Jason, is from S. Johnning on Twitter. If I say your name wrong, I, I, I apologize. It's kind of a two-parter. Uh, the first one he wanted us to talk a little bit about what's going on in drone development applications in, you know, industrial and in crops and weather gathering areas. Um, you know, we have seen. Uh, you know, drones have, have had some applications, you know, industrially. I know uh, Avita Systems is, is a uh, subsidiary of GE, and they, they use uh, drones for, you know, inspecting industrial spaces. They even use them for underwater inspections. And then, you know, we're also starting to see some drones in the agriculture space. You know, it's just cheaper to have a little robot fly over your one field than to pay some guy uh, to come fly, you know, go fly, you know, a, a plane over your, over your crops. It's a, it's a little bit more cost-effective uh, uh, alternative. Um, for what I've seen, I, there's not a lot of uh, you know drone-specific plays available on the market. Uh, you know, Aerovironment is one. They, they they make some military drones and have moved into some con- commercial space. Um, what are your thoughts on drones, just as as an investment opportunity, Jason? And are there any companies that you think are interesting in the area? Yeah, I think I think the, there's there's the the big challenge you kind of you kind of hit the hit it on the head is that you t- think about. <clears throat> like, you know, Avita's part of GE, and you think about some of the big kind of defense uh, mega conglomerates um, that have, you know, parts of their business that do drone work. They're, these are ten- typically, you know, a small part of a much, much larger business. And, and I don't know that the drone business for those companies is necessarily meaningful enough that you would want to build a thesis around investing in that company just because of it. Um, but I think we, we, it might be worthwhile at some point later this year that we did invest a little more time and really kind of dig in a little bit more um, <clears throat> to, to kind of talk a little bit about the specifics of that. Um, but I do like, I, I will say this, I like Aerovironment. I do. Um, I, I think it's, it's been kind of, um, kind of a tough past few years. Um, <clears throat> but the, the past year, I know the stock's up, up pretty good. And, um, but in terms of pure plays, yeah, I think Aerovironment's really about it. Um, but it has a ton of competition from some really big, really, really well-capitalized um, uh, companies that do a lot of other things. Um, so, yeah, I think we should really just kind of punt and uh, maybe talk a little bit more about it um, with a little more dedicated time. Yeah, I, it, there's just not a lot of investable opportunities out there right now. I, I think, as I mentioned, I think Air Environment's one of the only ones available in the market. So, I, I think drones are definitely going to be a, an interesting thing to watch going forward. They have a lot of applications, you know, all all across, uh, you know, different use cases. But for right now, from an investment perspective, we're just really limited in what we can choose from. But it's definitely something to dig into later on. Uh, as Johnny also asked about, you know, are we seeing any moves? 
to uh, you know use solar in more kind of targeted um, environments. So I think he, he mentions one where you could have like you know your AC powered by a specific solar panel and different different things linked up that way. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on this? I, I know as prices come down, you know the, the ability to use solar for for many more applications, uh, of course, is going to open up over time. But what kind of developments are you seeing here, if any? I think for the most part, not really, especially for these kind of stationary uses. Um, just because really the power of solar is in is in scale, right? The more the more you're able to deploy, the more efficient it is. The more power you capture, the lower the cost per unit of energy produced is, the cost per watt. So I think that's one of the challenges. But I think you know maybe in certain areas where you look at like uh, remote power, you think about um, uh, maybe a, <clears throat> a military application for you know, getting really remote, uh, a backpacker that's looking to have some source of power while they're, they're getting into the back country, you know, you, you'll see, you know, the efficiency gains are going to help kind of make the technology better there. Um, but, but I think in general, um, yeah, you will, but I, I don't think it's, again, it's kind of like drones. It, there's going to be a little bit of a commoditization happening there. Um, and there's going to be a few small specialists that maybe they make one or two little things that, catch the eye of a certain kind of vertical market. Um, but I think in general for stationary applications, especially in urban environments and grid connected environments, there's not necessarily going to be a ton of value for these like, you know, specific application stuff like powering a window unit kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think probably in the near term, we're going to stick with those old uh, solar powered calculators. Uh, but as we get more <laughs> more efficiency over time, hopefully we can get to where everything has one of those little, little things up in the top corner. It'll run everything. But uh the technology maybe maybe is not quite there yet, but it's definitely an exciting opportunity uh, looking forward. All right, then our our next question comes from Warren Kiesel on Twitter. Uh, he's a big fan and enjoys the show. He wants us to discuss Kinder Morgan and its prospects for the coming years. Says the stock has been a dog, but is the company in good condition? Jason, oh, where is where is Tyler Crow right. when you need him? <laughs> yeah. so for those for the uninitiated. Um, Tyler Crow, one of one of our fellow uh, writers, has um, is not a fan of uh, Kendra Morgan. Um, on the other hand, Matt Delalo, another one of our really top energy contributors as well, uh, he's a big fan of Kendra Morgan. Um, I know he owns a pretty substantial amount of it, so you know he he definitely has the skin of the game behind whenever he writes uh, and talks relatively positively about it. Um, so I think if we go back, let's go back a little ways, right? If we look at Kendra Morgan from the time that it went public uh, to now, I think the stock's lost about half of its value. I mean, it has not, it has not, been, a, it has not been a good investment. Um, even we add dividends in, it's still down like 28%. And a lot of that goes back to the oil crash from you know, 2014 to early 2016, when oil prices fell you know, like 70%. Um, there was just kind of a freeze in, in, um, in, in investment in the area. And the company had to halt its dividend like two months after saying that they could continue to pay the dividend, they just stopped it um, because their creditors said, you got to clean up your balance sheet and you need to have more cash flows and we're not going to extend you any more money to fund these projects that you're talking about. And that just cratered the stock price, right? I mean, it really did. It, 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 and the company has slowly, it's, the stock price has slowly recovered. And you know, if you look back you know, since the oil price bottom, uh, Kinder Morgan stocks generated about 24% in total returns, which, you know, that's, that's not too bad for a couple years. Um, so that's, you know, so that's good, right? Um, the past year hasn't been great. Uh, but, you know, some of the things that Matt talks about uh, that are important is, you know, the company 
has spent the past you know year and a half, two years, kind of deleveraging, um, signing more kind of uh, joint partnerships for development of projects instead of going on its own on these massive, big projects. Um, it sold off its um, uh, the, a big pipeline in Canada from that it's Trans that it's Canadian. Yeah, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that it's Canadian subsidiary held. So, you know, it's it's really been still kind of getting its house in order, but the dividend's up like 60% um, over the past year since they when they reinstated it. Um, I think they're going to increase it another 25% each of the next two years. Um, so, you know, I think if you if you kind of take everything that's happened in the past and kind of park it in its own little place and you look at the go-forward picture – it looks it looks good, right? It looks like Kinder Morgan should be a predictable, you know, high. It's going to be yielding. I think based on the dividend increase later this year, it's, it's yielding like six and a half percent, seven percent. So again, on a forward yield. So it, that's so. I mean, so there are definitely things to, to like about it. But what I always go back to, and the reason that I sold and no longer hold any shares, um, and I don't want to speak for Tyler, but in past conversations, he's kind of intimated the same thing. Is that this is a this is a company that has tended to get more aggressive over time, take on more leverage, take on more risk. So if I were to invest in it again, and I, I don't think I will, um, but if if I were, if I were an investor, I would watch really really closely how management acts in terms of adding additional leverage over time. And if it starts to lever, lever up and add more debt, I would probably move on relatively quickly. Because again, it gets back to the unpredictability of the oil markets and how that can affect a company that might be investing in a future project. And then the bottom falls out of the oil market and it has problem capitalizing that major investment that it's made. So I would just kind of put it in that, in that, in that box or that penalty box and watch it really closely. And if the balance sheet starts to get a little bit levered uh, and starts to squeeze on cash flows, then I would, I would uh, probably move on pretty quickly. Yeah, Jason, it's it's definitely a management question because when you look at, I mean, I, I saw the stats there. They, they move about forty percent of all the natural gas consumed in the U.S. They're really they're really tied to the whole natural gas growth story, which we kind of laid out in the front half of the show. They're investing in an LNG export facility, I, I believe, in Georgia. So if they can, you know, management can avoid taking excessive risk. They do look like they have some opportunities in natural gas, but you know, their track record has not uh, inspired confidence. Um, that that's that's going to be the way that plays out, and you know you got to ride the cycles with these businesses. So that's kind of important, uh, an important factor to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I think another good thing right now, just kind of another bullish signal, is even with this dividend increase that's coming up, uh, the company's only going to pay out about half of its cash flows this year to cover the dividend. So that's a substantial amount of cash it's retaining, and that's something it has not done in the past. So that's a, that's definitely a good signal. But again, watch it closely. Sure. Okay, Jason. And then our, our last questions from me. Uh, back in October, uh, you picked uh, Terraform Power as your kind of safe pick for 2019, and SunPower as kind of a high upside pick. There's still your picks today, or is there anything else that's kind of on your radar that you want to you want to tell folks about? No, I think it. I think it still is. Um, with the one caveat that is, as I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the Yolkos, I would I would wrap. Um, uh, Brookfield Renewable in with Terraform Power, just because the market has given up so much on it, and it's pushed the yield up, and it's created a really solid value. Um, and the reason why is the company has spent the past year, year and a half or so, management has at one point had sold off substantially more dollar value in assets than it had acquired. And it's just taken it time to kind of recycle that capital um, into into new 
uh, into new projects, into new assets. But the key is that it sold these old assets that were going at like two, three percent a year, and at a lower cash flow yield. And it's reinvested that capital, and it's working on closing a few of those deals and projects that are going to generate like mid single digit to high single digit yields. And they have like double to triple the organic growth potential. So it's going to take time, but the market's given us a great opportunity selling the stock off like 15% over the past year to buy this, this, these higher yield assets at a lower price and, and get rewarded with, uh, with growth in the, in the coming years. Yeah, great thesis, Jason. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show I, and stuff. I think we're going to continue covering going forward is what investors really need to watch is natural gas, renewables, storage. I think are, are storage are, are probably the, the most important things to watch. We're going to continue covering this year. I think Terraform Power covers that. Uh, it covers that in a you know significant way. And that Brookfield connection, as I mentioned earlier, you just know that they're going to make money no matter what the cycle does. And when That's you're right. seeing an inflection point. In the pricing, it seems to be a compelling uh, position for somebody like Brookfield to come in and start making some some investments and, and starting to profit off, off of where the market's going. So I definitely think that's a company to watch, and, and you know, probably could could fit into a lot of investors' portfolio. Absolutely. All right, all right, folks. So next Tuesday, I'll be back. Uh, I'll be discussing casino stocks with Asit Sharma on consumer goods, and then also next Thursday, we'll be discussing the latest news in the auto industry. If anybody has questions about that. You can reach out to us, as I mentioned, on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or via email at industryfocus at fool.com. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Always fun to talk to you about what's going on in these energy markets. And I know we'll have you on soon to break everything down. Sounds great. You know, I'm always game to come on. Yeah. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. All right, Jason, we actually did have one more question. Our resident uh, Motley Fool, uh, Fool.com tech expert, Brian Ty had to ask us about what happened in the national championship game on Monday night. The last time I had you on the show in December, we kind of previewed what was going on in the college football playoff. And I figured we would come back and revisit what happened for folks who didn't see. Uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide were, were pretty, pretty, pretty well throttled by Clemson. I believe the final score was 44-16, to 16, a 28-point victory. Uh, what did you see out there, Jason? Yeah, so um, I... I, I so if you go back to our, our the last time you and I chatted before, um, you know I I did say that, you know I thought that the gap the talent you know the, the 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 gap between Clemson and Alabama was probably a lot narrower than a lot of prognosticators were expecting that it would be. You know coming into that game, I mean there was a lot of talk about you know this being the best Alabama team ever, right? Like a historically great, and it was a historically great team, especially on offense but still a very talented defensive team, especially on that line. Um, so anyway, and I said, if Clemson can get pressure and containment on Tua Tagaviola, the Alabama quarterback, that it would have a really good shot in the game. And while um, I was partly right, they got a little pressure on Tua. What I was completely didn't expect was how good that freshman quarterback 
looked. By the way, he grew up about 45 minutes from where I did, so I should have known about this guy. Um, but what an incredible performance by that offense. And, um, I mean, I was, honestly, I was expecting Bama to win by 10 points. Um, I, the, I, this, they, I'm talking about shocking the world. This was, wow, they beat the crap out of your Crimson Tide. They really did. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I thought going into the game, Jason, was it, you know, we talked about how great Clemson's front was and, and you know, they're all incredible players. I, I thought if Alabama could run the ball, they would have a really good chance to win, that they would open up, they wouldn't be able to kind of keep a bunch of guys deep and two would pick them apart. And Alabama was able to run the ball uh, pretty effectively, but, you know, Tua made a few mistakes. That pick six early in the game really hurt them. And then you know, they really just stalled a lot, uh, you know, in the red zone uh, many times during the game. You know, there, there was some some questioning what happened with, with the fake field goal at the end of the game. Um, or uh, Anyway, in the second half. Um, so, but I think the real story of the game was that, uh, you know, Alabama's defensive front was was pretty well stymied by, by Clemson. They had no sacks the entire game. And then Clemson really dominated on third down. Uh I think they had uh, three or four third down plays that were 20 yards or more. And, you know, uh, any and the big thing is, too, you mentioned the, the how close together these teams are when it comes to talent. And if you're a team like Alabama, who, who is more often than not, you know, you know, have a, a big talent advantage versus your competition. When you play a team like Clemson and you make mistakes, they're going to punish you for them. And, and we saw that, you know, the, the cornerback fell down on one play and they took it to the house. Um you know, it, it, that was just the story of the game. When Clemson needed to make plays, needed to make plays on third down, they did. And when Alabama needed to make plays, they didn't. Um, but all that to say, uh, you know, I think I think Alabama will be back strong again next year. Nick Saban likes to focus on the process, doing what you have to do to improve and get better every day, and not to focus on your results. I think that's a good way that investors should probably try to look at their own portfolios, and that you're gonna you're gonna get your lumps every now and again. Some unexpected things are going to happen that makes parts of your portfolio tank. But if you can just focus on the process of getting better every day over time and focus on the long term, what you need to do to achieve your goals, uh, you'll, you know, sooner or later you will be rewarded. I think for us mortals, that's, that's really, really good advice. Uh, my, my question, though, is, is it possible that um, Nick Saban has just run out of souls to sell? Uh, that's a possibility. I mean, I think you have to consider it. You know, I, may, maybe you can, maybe you can. I, I just think he's the hardest working man in the game, and uh, you know, yeah. but uh, but you know, we'll see. It was a great season, and you know, it, it wasn't a totally bad week for for you know Alabama uh, Crimson Tide uh, uh, football folks. You had Freddie Kitchens, former quarterback for the Tide, named the head coach at the Browns. You had Bruce Arians, former Alabama offensive coordinator, is now the head coach in Tampa. And then let's not forget uh, Dabo Swinney was part of the 1992 Alabama national championship team. Uh, when he played there, and has only really coached two places at Alabama and Clemson. So, you know, it, it was a tough game, but, I, you know, if we just focus on the long term, Bama will be back, and there's always positives to come out of uh, situations like this. So for folks to remember, gonna, whether it's in sports or uh, investing. That's right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction. Here's the way-too-early prediction. Georgia and Alabama will both play, and the, they'll play in the SEC championship game again next year. I think Georgia will be undefeated. Alabama will have one loss. They will have lost to LSU, but it'll be in in, in Alabama in Tuscaloosa because I think it's a home game mm-hmm. for Alabama next year. <clears throat> Georgia will make the playoff, and Alabama will not. 
So that's, that's my way too early prediction for next season. All right, Austin, I want you to clip that, and we'll come back to it uh, this time Write next this year. down. <laughs> Write this down. All right, Jason, I really enjoyed having you on. Uh, good good to wrap up the college football season. I'm sure next season we'll talk about it uh, talk about it some more. We'll have a little break, you know, for a month until National Signing Day, and then uh, always more news. You know, I hope our listeners enjoyed this little discussion, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Pitchers and catchers report in two months, folks. There you go. Roll Tide. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.